Well, I've entitled my sermon today, A Theology of Persecution, because that's what we find in our text in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. I would not call this an exhaustive theology of persecution, but it is a very helpful treatment of this subject. And we read in 1 Peter 3.13, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. There are, I think, two faulty attitudes that are often displayed in regard to persecution. The first one is to never expect it, to think it's strange, to think it outside the realm of what ought to touch the life of a believer and to avoid it at all costs. And the second wrong attitude is to always expect it, to have a persecution complex or a martyr's complex, to invite persecution unnecessarily. And so we learn a great deal about persecution from Peter. Those who believe that Christians should never be persecuted sometimes have adopted the health and wealth philosophy that if we have enough faith, then no bad thing should ever happen to a child of God. But I'm not sure what Bible they're reading. Others of God's people, I think, are convinced that it's only a lack of wisdom or a lack of winsomeness that would ever cause us to be persecuted, that if we would just be more clever about how to properly present our Christian message and to emphasize the love of God and the benefits of the gospel, then we can avoid persecution. And that also is a very mistaken notion. But on the other hand, those who seem to have the attitude that everybody's out to get me and they think every little slight is evidence of Christian persecution because they name the name of Christ are also wrong, And so Peter shows us the truth, and in this text we find a theology of persecution. And I trust we shall see, number one, normal persecution conditions in verse 13. Number two, exceptional persecution conditions in the first part of verse 14. And number three, the attitude necessary for persecution conditions in the last part of verse 14. First of all, normal persecution conditions, and again, 1 Peter 3.13, and we read, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Notice, first of all, the connection. That little word, and, which connects it back to the previous context. It tells us that what Peter is saying here is really a continuation of what he has already said. And he has more to say on the subject that he has already covered in previous verses. And so what is it that he wants us to think about as we look back into the previous context? And, of course, we remember that he has just quoted from Psalm 34, verses 12 through 16. He said, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit or guile. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? It's interesting that the word harm in our text in verse 13 is from the same root word that is translated do evil in verse 12. 
And so verse 13 is really saying, who is he who will do evil to you if you become followers of that which is good? That's what he's pointing us back to. Of course, it's also possible that he wants us to look back a little bit further into the context. Back perhaps to the summary statement of verses 8 and 9. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brethren, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you might inherit a blessing. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? In other words, we should live Lives of good, conspicuous good upon the earth and expect the blessing of God for living that kind of God-honoring life and expect his protection against those who would harm us. Or indeed, Peter may want us to go all the way back to the beginning of this entire section. Back to chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. And you remember Peter told us there that our good works are often used by God to bring unconverted people to repentance and faith, that God often visits them and uses our good works to convert them. And with that in mind, he says, and who is he who will harm you? if you become followers of what is good. Verse 13 is a question. My Bible has a question mark at the end. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? It it is asking for an answer. It is actually a rhetorical question. Peter isn't expecting his readers to see, oh, Peter asked me a question. He wants me to write him back and give him the answer. It's not that kind of question. It's a It's a device that is often used by speakers and writers to make us think. And the answer is already implied in the question. And the construction of this one makes it clear that Peter expects a strong, negative answer. Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Expected answer, nobody. Nobody's going to harm you if you do What is good? However, the question also causes us to focus upon a potential perpetrator, someone who wants to harm us, someone who intends to harm us, who desires to harm us, who would harm us, who will harm us if he is able to do so. And yet the very way this question is framed, it tells us that such a person is an evil person and even falls outside of normal behavior even in the world. Let alone within the body of Christ. But if there's anybody who's going to harm you, he's going to fall outside the parameters of normal behavior in the world as it presently exists, is what Peter is implying by the construction here. And indeed that is borne out in the verses to come. But there is a condition upon this kind of protection, this kind of expectation of protection from persecution. And the condition is if you are doing good, if you are doing good, 
Who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Become followers is a rather mild translation of what is found in the original. It's really the idea if you are eager to do good. Literally, if you are zealous for that which is good. If you are full of zeal for that which is good, then who would harm you? Who could you expect to bring harm in that kind of a situation? The same kind of zeal that Paul testified was his as a Pharisee before his conversion. He says in Galatians 1.14, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers. And we know from Paul's testimony and also the historical record of Acts what exceeding zeal Paul had to pursue the the religion of the Jews and also to persecute the Christians that he thought were a threat to true religion. That is, until he met Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And then he became zealous for Christ. Equally zealous to serve Christ as he had been to oppose Christ. But all throughout his life, Paul was zealous to do what he thought was good. And that's exactly the idea here. Who will harm you if you are zealous? For what is good. Because, as we know, doing good is usually rewarded, not punished. That's the normal condition. Doing good is normally rewarded, not punished. That's the way God normally deals with with affairs in this world. Punishing evil, rewarding the good. So, who is going to hurt you if you are zealous for doing that which is good. And so Peter makes it clear that doing good is the basis for our expectation that God will protect us. As we're considering persecution, he's telling us that that's not the norm. And that if we are zealous to do what is good, that normally we can expect reward for that kind of behavior, and that God will protect us in our lives upon the earth. Peter is telling us that good behavior normally minimizes suffering. The good behavior upon the earth normally minimizes suffering. That's the norm. That's the way most conditions are throughout the world, throughout history. That's what most of God's people are going to find in their particular area of life upon the earth. And therefore, Peter is saying, if you do evil, you have only yourself to blame. But if you are zealous for what is good, you can be sure that God is standing with you. And so if you find yourself persecuted, you need to first check up and see, is there something in my life that has actually attracted this unnecessarily? Is there something about me, about my behavior, about my misbehavior? about my misrepresentation of truth and of Christ and of the gospel and of the word of God and of proper Christian behavior that has somehow attracted this persecution because normally good behavior is going to be rewarded. Only evil behavior is going to be persecuted. And so by way of analysis, what we realize, verse 13, is saying that the normal expectation for the Christian is for a peaceful life. That's why Paul told us to pray along those lines in 1 Timothy 2.1. He said, therefore, I exhort, 
First of all, the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. That's the norm. And we should pray for it. We should pray that God in his providence will give us these kinds of what we might call normal living conditions. We should pray that God will so work in the hearts of kings and rulers and presidents and emperors and prime ministers and those who have authority over the society in which we live that God's people who are doing good will be able to live a quiet and peaceable life unmolested by authorities because of the life that we are carrying out, because that is the norm. And therefore, we should realize this is what most of God's people will encounter throughout their lifetime. Most ungodly people will not attack those who do only good. I say most unconverted people will not attack those who are doing only good. There are exceptions, as Peter's going to point out in the next verse. Most unconverted people are quick to attack hypocrites or swindlers. When unconverted people see people who profess to be Christians, who aren't living the way a Christian ought to live, and they see what appears to them to be hypocrisy, they're usually quick to attack that. When unconverted people see Christians, preachers, television evangelists or whatever who appear to be misrepresenting truth and swindling people, bilking them out of their hard-earned money, they're not reticent about attacking that. But most of God's people who are living quiet, peaceable, godly lives are not going to be attacked by unbelievers. That's the normal expectation. And that's why we realize that people, particularly in America today, where we have enjoyed a long period of peaceable conditions, that Christians who see persecution on every hand, who feel that they are being constantly persecuted, are undoubtedly too quick to assume persecution. They must have something of of an imbalance in their understanding and attitude they have somehow developed a persecution complex, a martyr's complex that is not really valid. And we need to recognize that this is not normal interaction between the world and the church, that the church should constantly expect persecution. And the reasons why this is so we've already touched upon, but let's look at them again. The reasons why the normal expectation is for a peaceful life is, number one, because of the character of those who would seek to harm you, and number two, because of the nature of Christian behavior. And what is the character of those who would seek to harm you if you're doing only good? Well, they must be particularly evil. They must be particularly malicious. They must be unnatural, even beyond what is normal in a fallen world. They must be people who have a particularly hostile bent toward Christ and toward the people of God. And there are people like that in this world. Don't get me wrong. There are people like that in this world. But that's the kind of person that we're talking about who would have any desire to persecute you if you are doing good. Who is he who would harm you if you become followers of what is good? Only a particularly evil, malicious, warped, 
enemy of Christ. That's the only person who would do that. And that person, normally, God will oppose and thwart. He will not normally allow such a person to succeed. Remember back to verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So if you do good, you don't put yourself in that category for God to be against you. You do good, God is going to help and support you, not thwart you, not be against you. But if someone is going to set himself in deliberate opposition to Christ, to the Word of God, to the Bible, to Christians, then he is the very kind of person that God promises to oppose to set his face against. So that ought to bring a great deal of comfort to the child of God. And so that's the first reason we have every right to expect that normally we will not be persecuted as the children of God. And then the second one, of course, depends upon the nature of Christian behavior, as we've already seen. We can expect this if we are zealous for what is good. Now, the key here is to make sure that we are constantly searching the Scripture to find out what God calls good and are not supplying our own definitions for what we think is good. Because if we take that phrase without studying the Word of God to find out exactly what kind of behavior God will bless and protect as opposed to the kind of behavior that's likely to attract persecution, we may be doing the wrong things. And we may, like Saul of Tarsus before he was converted, actually be opposing God while we think we are doing God's service. Even as Christians, we can do that. So what's the nature of Christian behavior that Peter has in mind? Well, that, of course, just takes us right back into the context. Those who are known for righteous conduct. Verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. For the eyes of the Lord, verse 12, are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. So those who are known for righteous conduct are those whose behavior is going to be rewarded by God, and those who would oppose Christians who are behaving righteously are likely to be thwarted by God. Secondly, those who are known for gracious speech. Verse 10, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Those who have a reputation for gracious speech are those that Peter calls doers of good. And we need to cultivate gracious speech. Thirdly, those who are known as peacemakers. Peacemakers. Verse 11, Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. And we remember how Christ himself told us that the peacemakers are blessed of God and that we as God's children are to be known as peacemakers. We should be more known for people who desire, cultivate, and endeavor to maintain peace than we are known for people who are continually spoiling for a fight. And I'm afraid that some of God's people have it backwards and maybe are attracting persecution, not for righteousness' sake, but for carnality's sake, for orneriness' sake, sometimes for misunderstanding's sake. Peacemakers. 
We are to be people who do not retaliate against evil. Verse 9, continuing back into the context. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. This is the kind of good behavior that Peter has in mind. People who don't retaliate, people who don't reply in kind when someone says something that is shameful and hurtful and is vicious against them. People who don't respond in kind to to uh, abuse and wrong actions that are done against us, but people who demonstrate a Christ-like spirit in all of these things and learn to turn the other cheek and to, to return blessing for reviling, blessing for cursing, and do good to those who despitefully use you and persecute you. And for those who do this kind of good, there is the promise that you can normally expect your behavior to be rewarded and for God to protect you against persecution. And finally, those who are submissive to authority. Peter has emphasized that a lot in the previous passage, as you remember. And so he says, for example, in verse 13, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors and so forth. And he has taught the people of God to be submissive to government, submissive to law, submissive to authority, Not to be known as the people who are always agitating against government, who are always trying to overthrow the government, who are seditionists, who are revolutionaries. There's no protection promised for people who have a constant behavior that runs in those veins, but for those who are sweetly submitted to to governmental authority, there is this promise of reward and protection. And likewise for slaves who are sweetly submitted to their masters. Again, verse 18, servants be submitted to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So when we are willing to suffer wrong quietly without retaliating, to submit ourselves to authority, even when it so often seems unjust. That's the kind of good behavior that Peter says God will reward and God will protect those who do that. He even follows it up, as you recall, with wives in chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that if even some do not obey the word, they may without a word be won by the conduct of the wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And again, the idea is the same. If we will submit ourselves to authority, whether, whether it is a good, good authority on good behavior, acting like it ought to act, or whether it is abusing its authority, but if we will commit abuses to God and respond in a submissive spirit, then in that situation, God says, I will protect you, I will reward you. But if you're not willing to do that, it seems like he's saying, you're on your own. Now, which way do you want it? You want to protect yourself or do you want my divine protection? You want to carve out your own niche here or do you want to commit it to Almighty God and let Him take care of you in these situations? One commentator says we are more likely to suffer if we are more zealous for others to do right than ourselves. 
We are more likely to suffer if we are more zealous for others to do right than ourselves. Isn't that the problem sometimes? We are full of zeal, but we're full of zeal to change everybody else's behavior, but not nearly as zealous to make sure that our behavior lines up with the Word of God. That will attract attacks and persecution. That, to the world, looks like hypocrisy, doesn't it? Be careful. And so in verse 13, Peter is telling us that persecution conditions are normally rare. Normal persecution conditions, verse 13, rare. You're not going to have that kind of persecution all the time. You needn't expect it all the time. But unless somebody gets the idea that it ought to never happen, he follows it up immediately in verse 14 by telling us that there will be exceptions to the rule. And so exceptional persecution conditions are dealt with in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. It does happen. It can happen. So don't rule it out altogether. And thus we see the exceptional nature of persecution, but the real possibility of persecution, as well as a divine blessing upon persecution. The exceptional nature of persecution, every one of those first three words in the English, in my English Bible, are also a representative of three separate words in the Greek text. And all of them speak of the same thing. But, even if. But, in contrast with the normal conditions just described in verse 13, even, this is not highly likely, but it's always possible, if... A genuine possibility, an exception to the norm. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, because it can happen, it may happen, God is not guaranteeing that it will not happen. And so we see the real possibility of persecution. Even if you should suffer. That word suffer, which is used 40-some times in the Greek New Testament, is used 12 times by the Apostle Peter. He talks about suffering a lot. And the suffering that this word indicates is not illness or the normal kinds of suffering, which are the lot of all people in life, but this is especially unjust abuse. The kind of suffering where states, governments, persecute, their citizens, the kind of, of suffering where masters or employers persecute their employees, the kind of suffering where an ungodly husband will make life miserable for a godly wife simply because she is a Christian trying to sweetly honor the Lord, the kind of persecution where neighbors will rise up against their Christian neighbors simply for their Christian testimony. That does happen. That is real. There is this kind of suffering. And even if you should have that kind of suffering. In other words, this kind of suffering should not be thought impossible. After all, we live in an unjust world, a sinful world. And after all, our Lord himself is the epitome of the one who never did anything but good. You talk about those who only do good and no evil. None of us actually have ever achieved that. But Christ did. Did that mean he didn't suffer persecution? (laughs) 
not on your life. Peter reminded us particularly of Christ's well-doing and his sermon to Cornelius in Acts 10.38, when he says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He went about doing good and healing, healing people who were oppressed by the devil, healing all kinds of diseases. He not only did nothing wrong, he did a mountain of good. He benefited everybody that he came in contact with. And what did they do with him? They persecuted him. They attacked him. They, they reviled him. They, they brought pain and suffering to him. They eventually put him to death. And Christ told us that we should not be surprised if the same thing happens to us who are his followers. Jesus said in John 15, 20, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Did they persecute him? Yes. Will they persecute us? Yes. You say, well, that seems to be a contradiction. Verse 14 seems to contradict verse 13. Well, that's why you've got both truths here, so we can hold them in tension and hold them in balance. Many, as we know, will applaud good behavior as long as it's not done in Christ's name. As long as you just do good but don't mention why. As long as you just do good but don't mention you're a Christian. As long as you just do good deeds but don't tell people that you're doing them for Christ's sake, a lot of people will be happy. But, of course, a lot of people will never hear a gospel witness. It's good to do good. It's good to do good deeds. It's good to be known as those who do good in the community. But don't hide your Christian identity and testimony just for the sake of avoiding persecution. In other words, there are exceptions to the norm, and God does not promise to exclude us from all persecution. Verse 13 is not a blanket promise that no persecution will befall the people of God. It is simply a statement of fact that normally this is not the way that most of God's people are going to to experience life, but we should be prepared for the exceptions because God may appoint us to be an exception. Some of God's children seem to be an exception all of their lives. Others of God's children will be exceptions at different periods, different points in in their life as God has particular reasons for that. In fact, when you think about it, the nature of the world in which we live and the fact that it's hostile to God and it's hostile toward God's word, the whole world is in rebellion against God. The real mystery is why there isn't more persecution. The real mystery is how there can be so much of the peaceful, normal condition described in verse 13. And the answer to that is obviously because God has willed it and God protects us. Otherwise, God's children would constantly be harassed and attacked and persecuted. That's the nature of this world we live in. This world is no friend of grace to help us on to God. But in spite of that, most of the time, we are not likely to suffer a great deal of persecution. Isn't God good? Isn't God wonderfully kind to us? We have no reason to expect that. And we better not think that it's our due, that this is what is owed to us, 
That if something different happens to us, that that is somehow wrong. Peter is informing us right here that there are exceptions, and we may be an exception, and so therefore we need to be ready for it. But there is a divine blessing upon persecution, for he says in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are blessed. A word that means that you are privileged participants of divine favor. Even if you should suffer exceptional persecution, don't forget, you are still blessed. Blessing isn't defined by a lack of persecution, or a lack of suffering, or a lack of trials, or a lack of illness, or a lack of poverty, or a lack of any of these things. That's not the way we define blessing. Blessing is defined by divine favor. And if you are recipients of divine favor, if you are a recipient of divine grace, you are immensely blessed no matter what else shall be your lot in life. You are blessed. Like Mary was blessed. Remember what Elizabeth said? Luke 1.42, Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said to Mary, the mother of Christ, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. What did she mean by that? Did she mean that Mary wouldn't have any sorrows, any pain, any suffering? When she said, blessed is the fruit of your womb, she was speaking of Jesus Christ. Did she mean that Jesus Christ would not suffer any persecution, any pain, any sorrow? Of course not. As a matter of fact, we know that Mary's life was appointed. She would be pierced through with many sorrows. The Bible tells us that, and indeed that's exactly what happened. And of course, Christ suffered persecution and pain beyond all description, and yet in spite of that, they were blessed beyond all measure. They were blessed. So understand what this blessing is. What this blessing is, first and foremost, is the mark of genuine salvation. If you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, true righteousness, true biblical righteousness, that's an evidence that you are a true child of God. Is there any greater blessing than that? Take the world. And give me Jesus, and I'll have the greatest treasure. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake is a sign of divine favor. Isn't that what Christ said? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's the mark of salvation. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. I mean, there really are just many, many blessings. To be persecuted for righteousness' sake, as I say, is a a mark. It's an assurance of genuine salvation. It is a promise of eternal reward. It is a sign of God's eternal favor. And furthermore, as we know elsewhere in Scripture, it contributes to our sanctification, to our spiritual health. How could we reject something that God uses so beneficially in our lives to make us more like Christ? And that deepens our joy. 
The world will never understand that. The world's idea of happiness has to do with circumstances and happenings. The Christian's idea of happiness has to do with eternal spiritual blessings and and how God the Spirit makes those more precious and more real to our soul. And he generally makes those exceedingly precious in the midst of suffering and persecution. That's when our apprehension and appreciation of things eternal grows. You know that by experience. If you've been saved any length of time at all, you know that's true. We read of the early disciples in Acts 5.40. So they departed from the presence of the council after they had been beaten and commanded not to preach anymore in the name of Christ. They departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They considered this persecution to be a blessing indeed. They thought that they ought to be envied for suffering this kind of persecution, not pitied. Why? Because it demonstrated that they had eternal life. Because it demonstrated that they had great reward in heaven. Because it demonstrated that the favor of God was upon them. It demonstrated that God loved them and cared for them as his children. He, he, he took them through these trials and, and gave them great strength and joy. And so they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer persecution for Christ's name. And so, in regard to exceptional persecution conditions, which will come from time to time, we need to realize it is a real possibility that we should be persecuted. And therefore, we need to expect it and be ready for it, not with that chip-on-the-shoulder attitude that thinks that every little slight is persecution. We should realize that we may go through our whole lives and never taste anything that is real, serious persecution. But on the other hand, we may get a great deal of it. Be ready seems to me like our attitude toward persecution is something like our attitude toward the coming of Christ. We know he may not come in our lifetime, but he may. Let's be ready. Always ready. Always looking. Always expectant. Always living in the light of the possibility that Christ may come in my lifetime. But, of course, millions of God's people were looking for him, and he didn't come in their lifetime. Well, it seems to me that the Bible teaching about persecution is similar to that. Most of God's people aren't going to face any great measure of persecution, but we may, so be ready, be prepared, have a good attitude, a biblical attitude toward it, so that if it comes, you will not consider it to be a violation of God's promise to you, a violation of the Word of God, a violation of what God has promised to His children. It is not that at all. It is to be expected And we need to be ready for it. And so that brings us finally to the proper attitude for persecution conditions. And that's the last part of verse 14. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And here Peter once again takes a text from the Old Testament. This time he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 12. Verse 12 reads, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And Peter picks up that last part 
of Isaiah 8.12, and he employs it to make his point here as to how we should respond to persecution when it comes. In the Greek, it reads literally, the fear of them do not fear. What does that mean? Well, in Isaiah, the meaning of this text was that Judah is not to fear what Israel and Syria fear, namely the invasion of Assyria. It's easy to get Syria and Assyria mixed up, but they're different kingdoms. And I don't have time to go into the context here in Isaiah, but that was the point, that both the northern kingdom, Israel, and Syria, in whom at this particular time Israel was in alliance with, they were both anticipating the very likelihood of an invasion by the great nation of Assyria, and they were scared to death. And the prophet Isaiah is sent to the southern kingdom, to Judah and to King Ahaz, and he says, don't you be afraid with what has made them afraid. In other words, you demonstrate your trust in God. You demonstrate your di- the difference in your, your focus. In fact, that's what verse 13 goes on to say. Uh, he says, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Verse 13, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Don't be afraid of what they're afraid of, the mighty kingdom of Assyria, but rather you have a reverential fear for Almighty God. That's who you need to fear. And if you fear Him, you need not fear anything or anyone else. And that's the way Peter appropriates this text for his teaching. If you will fear the Lord God, you don't need to be afraid of anything or anyone else. You don't need to be afraid of those who attack you. You don't need to be afraid of those who threaten you. You don't need to be afraid of those who intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid of those who persecute you. If you will hallow the Lord God in your heart and fear Him above all other things, then you have no need at all to be afraid of anyone or anything else. Don't be troubled. Don't be shaken. Don't be stirred up. Don't be agitated by their threats. And so the attitude that we are to bear toward persecution is courage, strengthened by faith. Courage, strengthened by faith. So in summary, what Peter is telling us regarding the Christian persecution is something like this. Normally, we will not have persecution. But persecution should not be unexpected. And therefore, if and when it comes, it should not be met with resentment and indignation. Nor should it cause pessimism or a persecution complex. But it should be faced with humble and believing courage. Now, I think there's a particular application that applies to us who are citizens of the United States of America. And we have trouble with this very matter. Because as citizens of America, and knowing how our country was founded on Christian principles, the Constitution, the safeguards, and we see these eroding away, we are highly indignant when any persecution should come against a Christian because we know that legally, historically, constitutionally, is properly understood, that really should not happen. But if we're not careful, we will adopt 
an ungodly attitude. We will be more zealous to straighten everybody else out than ourselves. We will be more intent about telling the world, the country, the government, the citizens, everybody else, what they ought to do and how they ought to live, and sometimes very careless about how we, who are Christians, conduct our lives before the world. We can react to persecution with great resentment and indignation as citizens of the United States, and maybe as citizens of the United States we would have a a proper historical and legal right to do that. But let's not forget that we are citizens of heaven first and foremost, even above our earthly citizenship. And that should rein us in and remind us that in all of our citizenship operations, and we have many wonderful privileges as citizens, we can speak out, we can We can address issues. We do have freedom of speech and of the press. We can vote. We have a lot of privileges that others haven't had. But we need to be careful in all of these things that we maintain a meek and a quiet spirit and a humble attitude and don't maintain the kind of attitude that makes it look like we are hypocrites or that we are threatening our unconverted neighbors and we're going to force them to believe what we believe and live like we think they ought to live. That just attracts persecution unnecessarily, unbiblically. But one more application. We've got an election coming up, don't we? God's people ought to exercise our God-given citizenship privileges and vote. We have as much right to vote as the unconverted. We have is more reason to vote, really, than the unconverted. And therefore, we ought to assess the issues the best way we can and vote as, as knowledgeably and prayerfully as we are able to vote. But let's not fear what the world fears. Let's not fear what even many Christians fear who are not remembering what God's Word said. Let's not act as if if the election doesn't go our way, that God is off his throne and the world is out of control? Let's honor God by fearing him above men and recognize that nobody can do anything except by his permission, by his design. Nobody can, can change any law. Nobody can do anything except God has a purpose in it. And if we are God's children, we are safe, we are secure, we are blessed. Shall we pray? How we thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you have told us in your word. How we thank you for the largeness of the peace and prosperity that we, your children, have enjoyed in the United States of America and indeed the majority of your people have enjoyed down through history. And yet, O Lord, we know that there are many of your people around the world in other countries right now who are suffering severe persecution. Why them and not us? We do not know. But we pray for them. And we know that you have wise purposes in the great suffering and difficulty that they are enduring at this time. 
And Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be gracious. Help us to be meek. Help us to be Christ-like. And most of all, O Lord, help us to be trusting. Help us to fear you and honor you above all things and over all circumstances, over all kingdoms, over everything that takes place in this world. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.